0: Well, this morning we're going to be in First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty. First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Um, this is following after. Uh, what we've been talking about with authority. Last week we talked about parents and children. The section of verse 8 through 17 was preached by Pastor Justin some weeks ago, an excellent sermon. If you missed it, I encourage you to go online and and listen to that. And so I'm going to pick up where he left off in verses 18 through 22. Uh, I am not going to... uh, cut it short here this week this is this is we're in deep waters we're in the deep end of the pool this week there's a lot going on in these passages and I want to make sure that when you go away from this morning that you are not more confused than when you left when you came here this morning and so I'm praying for my own clarity and ability to present these things to you but before we start I want to remind you of basic spiritual realities of what we're talking about here this morning And at the most basic level, I want to remind you this morning that you have a soul and there is a God. Because if you go out from this place and all of this is just talk about things that are speculative or difficult or interesting, and you forget the reality that there is a God in heaven and that you have a soul. And that what is being presented to us from Scripture are realities of God in spiritual things. And these are not simple things. And we should not expect the revelation of the mind of God to be something that we quickly grasp hold of and walk out of here easily. But our greatest, my greatest importance is that you come to a place here this morning where you put your faith and trust in God. That you find peace with God. Because every one of us do not begin at peace with God. We begin in a place of rebellion and under condemnation. And we must, as we'll see here this morning, call out to God for a clear conscience. We must desire peace with God and ask God to forgive us of our sins. We must put our faith in Christ Jesus. The, the righteousness of Christ must be counted to us because we do not have a righteousness of our own. We must enter into sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus because we do not have life of our own. On our own every one of us are going towards death and decay. It is only by grace through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we might be saved from these things. And so at the heart of our passage today is a rejection of God. And those that especially in the day of Noah lived lives of violence and depravity, and they hated God. And because they never turned away from these things, they were judged. They were judged unto death. And Peter uses the first judgment of God on the world in the flood of Noah, both in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, to warn us of judgment that is yet to come, the final judgment. But always in this, He speaks to us of the salvation of Jesus, the glorious, merciful, gracious salvation of Jesus. And it's my prayer for you that you will be saved, that you will trust Christ as your Savior and that you will understand what it means to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this morning I'm going to do my best to lift up Christ, that he might draw you to himself. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. Please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, verse 18 begins with Christ also suffered once. Uh, The suffering, you'll see in your, if you have notes in your Bible, that this suffering in some of the early manuscripts is also uh, translated, or I should say recorded as died. And so some translations have this as suffered, some have it as died. One way or the other, it does not affect the outcome of what we're talking about here. And any of the the small uh, differences or things that we do not fully know about the original manuscripts, because we do not have the original manuscripts of the Scripture, They don't ultimately change what is happening here because suffering has been spoken of throughout uh, the letter that Peter writes us and is a constant theme throughout Scripture. And the sufferings of Christ led to the death of Christ. And so we can see how both of these things go together. Christ suffered once for our sins. He died once for our sins. And one of the things that I always want to point out to you when the scriptures talk about the sufferings of Christ and us entering into the sufferings of Christ is that suffering is not a sign of divine displeasure. It is just the opposite. Those who suffer for the sake of Jesus will one day enter in with him to his glory. Many people will tell you that we ought to try to avoid suffering at all costs. But the scriptures do not tell us that. They tell us that we ought to instead enter into the sufferings of Christ, joining him in these things, that we might also be glorified with him one day. Those who love this world, those who seek after its pleasures, may find much of the pleasures of this world. But we're also told in the scriptures that that will be their only reward. Because once you pass out of this world, there will be no further reward for those who seek after the pleasures of this world. Philippians chapter 1 has an important reminder as Paul writes to the Philippians, as he writes to them from his own position of suffering, he writes them this in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now and here that I still have. So someone writing to the church as one incarcerated tells them, it has been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ. Very, a a verse worth thinking about. What in the world is he talking about here? Not only that we might believe in Jesus, but that we might suffer for his sake. It says that he suffered once. And what it's talking about here is the cross. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We need to understand as Christians that the cross is a singular event. It is an event that took place in time, and history, and it took place one time. And what happened there to the Son of God with his death, burial, and resurrection changed everything in the world. It altered the relationship between God and people forever. And what happened on that day is sufficient. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all those that had placed their faith in him and all that will place their faith in him. And we need to see that any understanding of the scriptures that keeps putting Jesus back on the cross is a wrong understanding of scripture. This is a part of uh, why... of many reasons but one of the many reasons why I have a problem with Roman Catholicism's understanding of Christianity because in their Eucharist or their understanding of communion they are continually reenacting the cross and recrucifying Christ and this is a problem there's a reason why there is no Jesus hanging on this cross but when you go into a Roman Catholic church he is still hanging there because they're still redoing this over and over but Jesus died once He died once in history. He really did bodily raise from the dead and as we see here in our passage, has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is not still on the cross. He is at the right hand of God resurrected from the dead. And so we need to understand that once and for all, Jesus suffered and was buried and died and resurrected. And that that event fulfilled something and completed something and opens something else. And so at a minimum, what it is doing is it is a substitution. It is the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous is Jesus. Jesus is the only righteous one, the only one that has ever or will ever enter into this world and live a full life and never sin. He is the righteous and all the rest of us are the unrighteous. And so it was Jesus in substitution for all of us. He took our sins upon himself, but it's a two way thing here. As he took our sins upon himself, his righteousness was counted to us. And so we are seen those who repent of their sins and believe in the salvation of Jesus. Our sins, our guilt is unloaded upon him, and his righteousness is counted to us. And in this is the way of salvation. But the question would be, why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he suffer for us? Why would he die for us? We must never lose sight of the great love of God for us, the love of God to bring near unto himself a people redeemed, and this for his own glory. That Jesus is both just and the justifier. He is the one who is making us just. He demands justice and he is opening a way for us to be justified because of his love for us and for his own glory. As it says here in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. We begin separated from God. Our sins separate us from a holy God and we cannot ever enter into the presence of a perfectly righteous and holy God when we are a sinful, wicked person. And this is cause for despair if it were not for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. But God in his great love for us and his great mercy towards us, he makes a way to bring us near to himself. The scriptures tell us that God now counts us as his friends and then even as his family, and gives us an inheritance in his kingdom, and puts his spirit within our heart. And it's a completely different situation. This is salvation. I want you to see that the salvation of God is not a small thing. It's not like a new athletic routine or, or a tweak to your diet that makes your life a little bit better. The salvation of Jesus Christ is a wholesale change in your life, where you pass from dead to alive. And the living nature of Christ Jesus indwells you and begins to change you and will continue to change you until one day you enter into glory and are fully changed. The the nature of sin is wiped out of your life. And so Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Put to death being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Jesus was in the flesh and he was put to death in the flesh. He was put to death by the unrighteous, but he was also put to death for the unrighteous. That's fascinating. Something worth thinking about there, folks, that those that actually nailed him to the cross, he calls out from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The mercy of Christ is incomprehensible to us that someone could be killing you, and while they are doing that, you are seeking their mercy and their forgiveness. But this is the great mercy of Christ. But made alive, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the crucial part of this. If he remains dead, all of this is not, but he has not remained in the grave. He has been made alive. And so in Entering into the interpretation of the next few verses, it's important that we look at what the Bible says about what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The scriptures are very clear that when Jesus Christ died, he died in the body. So the Romans were very good at killing people. If they were good at anything, it was good at killing people. And they made absolutely sure that he was dead, and then his body is taken and embalmed and put into a tomb, um, and his body is in the grave for three days. But the Spirit of Jesus ascends to be with the Lord. As it says in Luke 23, 46, Jesus calls out from the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so the Spirit of Jesus goes to be with the Lord for that interim three-day period of time until he is resurrected from the dead, overcoming death. Verse 19 is uh, is the kicker here this morning. So I'm gonna be honest. I read every commentary I have on it, and uh, here we go. So um, he went, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Let's look at the text first, because we're here to interpret and understand the Bible. So what are the elements of this passage here? So in which he, he is Jesus, because we've been talking about Jesus here. He went, so he, he went somewhere uh, to proclaim something. It says he went and proclaimed, uh, it, this can, proclaim can also be translated as preached. So if you have Jesus going somewhere to proclaim or preach something, what did Jesus go about proclaiming and preaching? Well, we have abundant evidence of this in the, in the scriptures and the gospels. He went about preaching the salvation of God. That's, that's the essence of what Jesus preached. The way in which people might have peace with God through the mercy and grace of Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Proclaim to what? Proclaim to spirits in prison. So spirits, the word there relates to, just, just means spirit. So spirit can be used in many different ways, okay? This is part of the struggle here because spirits can relate to angelic spirits, demonic spirits. You and I have a spirit. We are spiritual beings. You're not just flesh and blood and guts and bones, you have a soul, as I reminded you earlier today, a spiritual part of you. And in both biblical writing and in ancient Near Eastern literature, the word used for spirit is kind of used all through these categories and the context determines what is being spoken of. But the context here is difficult and and cloudy. But whoever these spirits are, they are in prison. So there is in some way they are in bondage. They are not free, and that they are there because they formerly did not obey. So it is a spiritual bondage of some sort because of disobedience. So these are the elements of this passage, and from there, it goes all over the place. So in AD 300, we have Clement of Alexandria, an early Bible interpreter, saying that Jesus went into hell between his death and resurrection to preach to sinners so that they might be saved. Well, there's a problem with that. In Bible interpretation, we always take more clear passages and interpret less clear passages from them. So Augustine quickly objected to this, saying that Hebrews chapter 9 is very clear. It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. The whole passion of evangelism and the pressing of the gospel, the urgency of the gospel is that when we die, there is finality to our death and that we do not have a chance to go and hear again and repent again and live life over again after we die. That just grates against the entire message of the Bible. And so he rejected Clement's interpretation. We can go forward into the 16th century in the period of the Reformation where Cardinal Robert Bellarmine of the Roman Catholic Church argued that Jesus went to the edge of hell to release Old Testament saints that were caught in purgatory. So the Roman Catholic Church teaches about purgatory. They have a, a desire to put off the finality of salvation because their system of doctrine doesn't allow for any final security of salvation, because it relates to the keeping of sacraments, and nobody really knows if they've kept the sacraments well enough or not, and so we need to give people an escape valve here that if you were a really good person, but you didn't quite keep the sacraments well enough, you're going to enter into this place called purgatory, which is like a waiting room between heaven and hell, and then you can go further from there to do more things to try to uh, keep the sacraments better, and then perhaps enter into heaven later. Well, that's not in the scriptures, folks. That's something that comes from intertestamental writings, which is something that they include in in their Bible. But again, it's the idea that we can come to salvation by making a choice for Christ after death somewhere in the afterlife, which I reject as well. Luther, uh, Martin Luther of the Reformation period, someone that I admire greatly because of his passion for the scriptures, well, I was encouraged to read this. He said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament. I do not know for certain just what Peter means. So if Martin Luther does not, cannot give us a conclusion, I, 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 will, do, I will give you the best of my understanding of this, but I'll, I'll also tell you that uh, I have a little question mark by this passage. And y'all, many of you that have been here, you've heard me say this a lot. When I come to a passage that I do not understand, I'll take a pencil and write a question mark next to it. Uh, It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a meaning. It just means that I don't understand it. And I don't understand what is happening here. But one day it will be revealed. And from the time that I was a young man and started writing question marks in the margins of my Bible, many of those question marks have been erased. But many of them remain. And I believe that many of them will remain until I enter into glory and have a chance to ask Jesus himself, like, what in the world is going on here? But many interpret this passage of spirits in prison because Peter goes to speaking about Noah next and the righteousness of Noah and the ungodliness of the time of Noah, they take the interpretation and bind it to the first part of Genesis chapter 6, which is very helpful because that's probably the other most uh, debated passage in the Bible. And so we link these two Incredibly uh, debated passages to each other, and we just end up with a lot of difficulty. Genesis chapter 6 talks about the sons of God entering into sexual relationship with the daughters of men, and there's wild speculation about what that means. But those that interpret that as angels being involved with people end up carrying that interpretation over to Jesus somehow. Speaking over or condemning or proclaiming victory over angelic spirits, they tie the two together. My understanding of Genesis six is not that. Uh, my understanding of Genesis chapter six relates to the two uh, genealogies that are just before that in Genesis chapter five, uh, four and five, where it talks about the lineage of Seth and the lineage of Cain. So in the stories of the Old Testament, you have Seth carrying on the godly lineage of Abel who was killed by his brother Cain. And there's a very clear lineage of Seth, which is a lineage of godliness. And then there's the lineage of cursed Cain, an ungodly lineage. So you have two very clear uh, lines of, of family. But it's in Genesis chapter six that it says the sons of God began to lust after the daughters of men and my interpretation of this is what happens everywhere and what is uh, condemned by the scriptures from the beginning to the very end, that those who are godly should not enter into marriage with those that are ungodly. And when the godly lust after the ungodly, it brings in corruption and decay and quickly leads to judgment. And that's exactly what you see in the time leading up to the days of Noah. Um, This understanding of Genesis chapter six feeds into a different understanding of what we have here in 1 Peter chapter three. Of all the various opinions, I agree the most uh, with the opinion of R.C. Sproul. I'm gonna read this to you here this morning. And when he says about his opinion of this, he says, my opinion of this is a minority opinion because every opinion is a minority opinion because there is no consensus on this. But his, I believe, is the most scriptural. And I'm always gonna take you to what I believe is the most biblical understanding, not something that's based on wild speculation. So he writes this. The fourth opinion as to whom Jesus preached is not without difficulties. When I think of Jesus preaching by the power of the Spirit, the first thing that comes to mind is his inaugural sermon in the synagogue when he read from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, after Jesus read the text, he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. At Jesus' baptism, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered for his earthly ministry. And the majority of his attention while he was on earth was given to his own people, Israel. When John the Baptist was thrown into prison, he sent a message asking, Are you the coming one or should we look for another? And Jesus answered, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, which is from Matthew eleven three through 5 And when Jesus sent that message to John the Baptist, he was in essence telling John to go back and read Isaiah 61. If we look at Isaiah 61, we see that the heart of the Messiah's task was to preach release for the captives, the lost of Israel. So it is possible that what Peter has in view here as he is writing to Jewish people are living people. The spirits in prison are not dead people, but living people, not people in hell, but people who are held captive by their sins. And so I want to read to you the first few verses of Isaiah 61, which Jesus uh, quotes as he first enters into ministry. By his own choice, opens and reads these things. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance Of our God to comfort all who mourn. And so, if in fact this is the case, that if we read again what we have before us, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, the idea of Jesus doing what he did, which was going to the people of Israel, proclaiming the gospel to those that were in bondage, their souls were imprisoned to death and sin. Why? Because they had for a very long time been a rebellious people, and you don't have to read the Old Testament very long to see the rebellion and hard-heartedness of the people of Israel. But the passage moves on to the time of Noah, because they formerly did not obey, going all the way back to the time of Noah, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. The time of Noah, a time of rebellion and evil and violence and depravity, but a time of God's patience. God is patient and God is merciful. And he was patient and merciful then as he is now. And in his patience, he seeks after a righteous person and gives a door of uh, salvation by faith to this person. So I'm going to read to you about Noah. In Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and it, forgive me, we're going we're gonna to do more scripture bouncing around here than we normally do, but you just cannot understand this passage without looking at other parts of the scripture. So if you need to go back and listen to this, this sermon again to, to follow with me, please do so. But Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the faith of Noah, it's a summary of the life and ministry of Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so we see very clearly that the salvation of Noah is a salvation by faith. Why is it a salvation by faith? Because God told him that judgment was coming, but he could not see it. And what God asked him to do seemed ridiculous to the watching world. But he did it anyway because he believed God. And you should immediately see a parallel between Christianity and that. Uh, Most people mock the idea of Jesus coming again. That is absolutely ridiculous. And yet we live our lives by faith believing that what God has said will in fact come to pass. And so he brings a parallel here of... Noah and this Old Testament uh, and, and what is going to happen in the future. And Noah did two things. Noah believed, and in his believing, he preached. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, when Peter takes up this theme again in 2 Peter, which we'll hit when we get there, he says that Noah was a herald of righteousness, Noah was one who preached and said what God told him to say to these people. There has never been a time of unrighteous, depraved people where God did not send some prophetic preacher or teacher to call them to repentance. And this time was no different. Noah did not just build something. He was a herald. He was a herald of the righteousness of God, but the people hated him and they rejected his message. But while he believed and preached, he also built. And he was acting on what God told him to do. And in his preaching and in his building, he is acting faithfully before the Lord and enters into the salvation of God. So by faith, Noah and his family are saved through the waters of this flood. We go back to verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Safely through water. So they are saved as if breaking out through the waters of this flood where everyone else was consumed by it. They rose to the top. The death of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous. Verse 21 says that this salvation of Noah and this whole situation of Noah corresponds to baptism and then to our salvation. And you say, all right, I'm not, I'm not totally tracking here. Well, let's, let's keep looking at it. The salvation of Noah and his family through water by faith res- corresponds to salvation, our salvation, which also relates to baptism. So Noah was saved through the flood waters, and our salvation is demonstrated as we pass through the waters of baptism. So we're going to end up transitioning here to talk about our salvation and baptism. But before we do that, I want to stop and make a note of something that I do often in the New Testament when it relates to things in the Old Testament. I don't want you to hear me this morning. If you put Noah and the flood and the ark in the category of mythology, none of this makes any sense. And none of this is true, by the way. If Noah didn't exist and the flood didn't really happen and there is no judgment coming and all this stuff about Noah is just something that someone made up, then our whole concept of baptism and salvation and the coming of Christ, all, all of this just falls to pieces. But you need to understand that Jesus spoke about Noah and he spoke about judgment in the past and judgment yet to come. And all of the apostles, all of them spoke about these huge characters in the Old Testament. And they used these events to teach us, instruct us, and warn us. By looking to the past, help us to look to the future. And so we believe these things by faith. But you need to look to the Old Testament and strengthen your understanding of what is there and see the hard ties between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll read to you this morning from uh, the commentary on this passage by Thomas Schreiner, an excellent New Testament biblical scholar. He says, the waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters in that they are baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection, just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood. Believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. The word now refers to the present eschatological age of fulfillment. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the age of salvation has arrived. If you think, well, how does baptism, this coming through the waters of baptism, why why does this have anything to do with death? Well, we need to go back and look at Jesus and how Jesus describes his own coming death. This is just one place where he describes his coming suffering and death by the words of baptism. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 and following. Mark 10, 35 and following. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us "'whatever we ask of you.' "'And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' "'And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one on your right hand "'and one on your left, in your glory.' "'And Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you are asking.' Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able, but they weren't. The baptism by which he was soon to be baptized or submerged under was the suffering unto death on the cross, and they were not able to enter into that. They were fearful of it, and they all fled when the time came, but Jesus did enter into that. Something that we could not enter into ourselves. But we may now share in this. When we look at Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 5, Paul writes to us this about the connection between the death of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, and baptism and what our role is in it. In in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 5, Paul writes this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so there is something powerfully symbolic, something more than just a simple uh, going through the motions of something. We have a greater issue here of, in the past, the unrighteous dying by water, but the righteous being saved by faith out of that. And that symbolism being carried forward to Christ describing his own death as being baptized in suffering unto death. And yet he is able to overcome this through his resurrection, something that we never could And so now when we are baptized, we are immersed under these waters. And as one commentator says, if you immerse someone under the water and you never bring them back out again, they're going to die. But we bring a person out of the water as symbolism that there is not death in Christianity. There is life. And we join in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and walk in newness of life. So baptism, in a way, corresponds to Noah being saved from judgment through water and us being saved from judgment through the waters of baptism. This is, I grant, a difficult text. We're gonna keep talking about it here for a few more minutes, but what I need you to not say is, I don't understand this, so this is pointless, and say this is I- irrelevant. When Peter, the the. the, the rock of the church, one of the central disciples, one of the central apostles comes out and makes this long, uh, pressing example of saying how our salvation is tied up in some way with baptism, we should hear what he is saying and strive to understand it. And so what does it mean? Many people stumble on this next section here because Peter says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ so how does baptism save you well it is not by a ceremonial washing it's very clear it's not about washing dirt off your body so that you come out cleaner physically than you were when you went in And everyone understands that you can't put someone under water and bring them out of water and have their soul be cleaned. So what is he talking about here? And he says what he's talking about. As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to appeal to God for a good conscience or a clean conscience? Every person that has ever come to salvation has felt the weight of the guilt of their own sins. And they have felt that they are condemned before God. And they know that they need a savior. They know that they need forgiveness from somewhere. And salvation begins with an appeal to God for a clean conscience. To say, God, forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. And you're asking God to do something for you that you can never do for yourself. And so as we appeal to God... For a clean conscience, we are confessing our sins and we desire a pure heart. We desire our guilt and shame to be removed because we want to escape judgment. But this does not come by the washing of the body. It comes through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because if Jesus has died and has not raised from the dead, there will be no forgiveness of sins because there is no life, there is only death. But in Jesus, who has overcome the grave, And has substituted himself the righteous for the unrighteous that we might have life. When we come to him and confess our sins and appeal to God for a good conscience. He will grant it to us by his grace and by his mercy. It is not by washing of water but by the resurrection life of Jesus. That we escape judgment and we share in eternal life. But baptism matters. And the definition, you have to define our terms. The terms defined here is something that comes after we have sought a clean conscience. Something after we have made a confession of Christ. Something that does relate to the New Testament pattern of putting someone under the water and raising them back out because it is symbolically powerful. I want to read to you from... Uh, a book, it's a series of articles by some excellent authors called Believer's Baptism, A Sign of the New Covenant in Christ. Those of you that may struggle with baptism, I encourage you to pick up this very helpful volume. But again, reading from something written by Tom Schreiner, Peter comments that the mere removal of dirt from the body does not bring salvation, demonstrating that the water itself does not save. Baptism is only saving If there is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism saves only because it is anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The waters themselves do not cleanse as is the case when a bath removes dirt from the body. Indeed, the objective work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection does not save unless there is a subjective element as well. The one receiving baptism also appeals to God for a good conscience, which means that he asks God to cleanse him of his sins on the basis of Christ's death and his resurrection. Well, if anything, this passage presses us towards the importance of baptism, and it is an appeal by Peter for believers' baptism. I don't know uh, what baptism is in your past, whether you've ever come to Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, and you know you have appealed to God for a clean conscience, it is right that you follow on in believer's baptism, that you proclaim to the world that Jesus is Lord, and that you enter into this beautiful symbolism of joining with Christ in his death and resurrection. If you were baptized as an infant somewhere, I would challenge you in this, and that an infant cannot believe in something. An infant cannot share in the sufferings of Christ, confess their sins, seek a clean conscience. Children, yes, many of our, I was saved as a child. We long to see the salvation of our children. We appeal to our children for their salvation. But this is teaching that is deep in certain ways and simple in other ways. And I was reminded by someone that I love very much about the example of Naaman in the Old Testament, which is an interesting example of God asking for someone to do something very simple and they wanted to make it very complicated. Naaman was one who went to Elijah and, and wanted to be healed of his leprosy and Elijah said, go dip yourself three times in the Jordan River. Have a nice day. And this very important, powerful person who brought this entourage of gifts and all these things, he wanted to make this huge ceremony, was offended and left and said, I'm not, that's just too simple. Like, I'm out of here. And his, uh, you know, person, his his attendant comes along and says, if he had asked you something great, you would have gone out and done it. Why don't you just, why don't you just do the simple thing that God asks you to do? And he does. And he's healed. And he goes back and rejoices. And so baptism seems like a simple thing, but it's an important thing. It's a powerfully symbolic thing and it is an act of obedience. And so in verse 22 we close with this. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. We've been talking about authority a lot lately. We began with the power and the authority of God and we end with the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, who all things have been subjected to his authority. He is in authority over all, resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And I will close us with this. Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped But that emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning. We strive with your word. We believe it is revelation from God and we want to understand who you are and your work in our midst from your word. We thank you for this time together and I pray that we would together seek after you and that we would struggle with deep things. We would not give up when things are complicated but that we would look carefully at them and that we would grow in our understanding of God and the work of salvation which is so simple that a child can appeal to God for a clean conscience and call out for mercy and receive mercy from God. And yet the salvation of God is so deep that we can study it for an entire lifetime and never plumb the depths of what you have done to save our souls. And so, Father, we worship you this morning, and we pray that we would be obedient in all things, and we would go out from this place as salt and light. And I pray for those that are striving in their souls even right now, with decisions that they know they should make before you, I pray that they would act in obedience to the command of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.